0: good afternoon homies um the penultimate daily australia at home briefing although not the last one i promise you and um thanks all of you for joining us on a thursday for a lunchtime discussion which i hope will be the least technical economic discussion that you've ever had or at least that's my objective because my dirty little secret is I don't really get economics, um, but we're lucky to have two people who really do get economics in um, Andrew Lee, who's you know one of the fantastic front bench of federal labor and Danielle Wood, who's about to become the head honcho um, in waiting of the Grattan Institute. Before I introduce them to you, um, just want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land. I know we're around Australia, we're all on, um, land that was never ceded. I'm on the land of the Gadigal people, the Ora nation. I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, um, and join with all of you in just reflecting on the moment in history we're living through, where we're both trying to reconsider um, where we go as a nation, but also probably have an opportunity to come to terms yet again with where we've come from. Um, so, like I say, my dirty secret is I, you know, I listen to the news every night. The finance seems to me like a weather report where I sort of hear these numbers and then I forget whether it's sunny or rainy the next day. Um, I hear a lot of politics that talks about current accounts and GDPs and the whole thing. And even though I did a little bit of undergraduate economics, and I actually sat in a lecture in my undergraduate year that JK Galbraith presented, which I reckon is one up on Andrew and Danielle i 've never really got it, and I think what I, the reason that we 've organized today's with Andrew and Danielle is i 'm really interested in how we can talk about economics as being a way of thinking through problems, but not in a jargon sense by actually pulling it back and just sort of talking about the world and, and getting you guys to explain to us how you see the world and the questions you ask yourself and see if you know uh, using myself as a litmus test, but the rest of our 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 audience whether um, we can find ourselves feeling a little bit more literate or a little bit more insightful after the discussion. So I'm going to sort of go through a whole bunch of things that have changed over the last few months and ask you with your lens to reflect on it and maybe share some ideas. But my challenge to you is to do so without using economic jargon. So that's the ultimate test today. I'm gonna sort of call tea if it gets too technical and let's see if we can round back, but I'm sure you'll be great. Um, Before we get started, I should have told everyone, the way we love to run these events, if you're new, and I'm sure none of you are new at this stage, put yourself on gallery view, put yourself on camera, use the chat to introduce yourself to each other and let's get the discussion going. So why don't we we start off with um, Andrew. Um, The question I wanna ask you to to get things going is, This has been a crazy few quarter. Like, this has been a crazy three months. What have you learnt about your discipline and both its potential and limitations through this period? Uh,
1: Well, thanks, Peter, for uh, having Danielle and I along today. It's uh, great to be joining you from uh, Ngunnawal land here in Canberra, Uh, and terrific to be uh, joining Danielle, who, as you say, is about to take over running Australia's preeminent domestic policy think tank. I think we've learned very quickly that uh, uh, anyone who claims that government wasn't the solution, government was the problem, uh, quickly found a rock to go and hide under. Uh, There's no one uh, reciting that old Margaret Thatcher dictum that there's no such thing as society. Uh, Governments around the world, whether run by left-wingers or right-wingers, have decided that this was a moment in which... Uh, there was a need for, uh, for governments to step in uh, to sustain employment uh, and to, s- to sustain those employment relationships um, there 's uh, there's really uh, nobody, nobody in this uh, in this debate that 's saying that uh, we o- this is just a natural shock, and we ought to let it cleanse the economy and sweep out the worst elements. Uh, that kind of crazy talk that uh, is sometimes comes about in retrospect. Uh, it hasn't been at all present among policymakers. Uh, one in thirteen jobs have gone. If we measured unemployment the way the Americans measure it, it'd be somewhere in the order of ten percent, or maybe maybe even a little higher. Uh, and in that environment, uh, we've seen particular hits to uh, the arts sector, where we lost a quarter of dual jobs, and waited until today for an arts sector rescue package. Uh, and uh, in the hospitality sector, we've lost one in three jobs. Uh, and unusually, uh, where the typical downturn has been a man session, uh, this, uh, this downturn has affected female jobs more than male jobs. Uh, Jeff Borland's just done some analysis showing that uh, in the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s recession, uh, almost all the jobs that went were male jobs. Uh, male employment down about five percentage points in each of those slumps. And that's simply not true this time around, which really matters for how we think, Peter, about the policy response. Mm. Uh, You can't just go off the shelf and say, let's do what we normally do in a downturn. Uh, Let's stimulate the construction and manufacturing sectors. Uh, Now we need to think about that, but also uh, about a much more uh, female-friendly intervention uh, to sustain those uh, face-to-face service jobs.
0: Hey, Daniel, one of the things that, I don't know if this is my pop economist, but the, the whole thing of Thatcher separating out society from the economy, it feels like it's a moment where if that ever did break and it was a dichotomy, it's kind of coming back together. I'm, I'm interested in, in your reflections on... It, it feels that the economy's in trouble, but the society's doing okay at the moment in Australia and how you, you sort of think that through. Yeah, look,
2: I mean, I think that was always a uh, false dichotomy. I mean, the economy is people <laughs> at the end of the day, so it's It's very much integrated within society. So, um, yes, the economy has been in trouble. I mean, what, what we found is, you know, if we shut down essentially, you know, large sectors overnight, um, you know, people will lose jobs when people are feeling incredibly uncertain um, and they stay home or they don't spend, um, you know, we lose jobs, we lose income for the economy. But as Andrew said, what we have, what we've seen, is actually governments all around the world step up to counter that, um, because you know, you know, we got there quite quickly in Australia. I'm pleased to say. You know, what we found is that you know, if you just left that to to, to happen, we would have seen, you know people losing their jobs permanently. And we know that it has really long-term scarring effects. We would have seen businesses close their door and a big hit to the productive capacity of the economy. You know, you can't just replace those businesses overnight. Um, so the right response here was for government to craft solutions that kept people attached to their employers that allowed businesses, even if they had to temporarily close their doors, to be there ready to open again on the other side Um, So, you know, I think actually that the design of the response here has been a really positive thing Um, and that, you know, essentially has, you know, we talked about hibernation. It was actually what was happening. Um, You know, we essentially put parts of the economy on ice. Now we're starting to thaw them again um, and that's coming back to life. So I think, you know, that society element, um, you know, having government there in the background coming in to provide the support needed has meant that the whole thing, um, has worked relatively well. Um, and cor- obviously, incredibly difficult situation. Um, you know, some businesses have closed, some people have lost their jobs, but it could have been far, far worse.
0: Okay, so let's talk about jobs and the way that the economy values jobs at the moment. So, um, in ter- you know, I think, you know, traditionally we've had a bunch of professions that are valued very highly. We've had people working in business, and then we've had people working in sort of, I guess, services, the emergency services, particularly your nurses, your teachers, who are seen at a lower value by the economy. And then you've had people working in um, the hospitality and retail that are again seen at a lower if, if you just go by the economy and how you you set wages, there's been a priority of value. Have The economists got it wrong in terms of valuing the sort of work that has different values to it? Uh, and what do you do about that? Uh,
2: do you who, who would
0: you... I don't know, I know it's a silly question, but I've been asking myself for ages, like how does, why, is, why do we value jobs the way we do?
1: Uh, well, the, uh, the wages are, uh, are set by supply and demand, but that doesn't go to the inherent value of an occupation. Uh, as any of us who's, uh, who's ever really valued the services of uh, an early childhood worker, or a hairdresser, uh, a church minister, a yoga instructor will know, uh, there are occupations that are not paid particularly well, but are enormously important. You know, I think about uh, ad executives and people who stacked shelves at Woolworths. Um, ad executives, high status, you know, they uh, in, enjoyed the uh, resurgence of mad men and all of the uh, frisson that came with that. Uh, but when the shutdown came, it turned out that the people stacking shelves at Woolworths were the real essential workers. Uh, so I hope that that prompts more of a rethink about how we treat those workers, um, particularly things like access to to, uh, sick leave. Uh, So I worry that we're in an environment in which too many people are moving towards casual work in which they don't have sick leave. Uh, And that then means that some of the people who are doing the most face-to-face occupations, the most of the occupations that we now know to be essential uh, don't have the uh, the benefits of sick leave Uh, that simply put, ensure that if you don't turn up to work, you still get still get paid. Uh, so rethinking sick leave, rethinking the status of essential workers. I hope there are changes that will, uh, will come as a result of this awful pandemic.
0: What do you say, Daniel, to the way that we actually value work?
2: Yeah, I mean, so Andrew's right, is this sort of coming around through market forces rather than economists sitting there and, and saying that. But, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, markets are going to be good tools to, to find that social value. But um, I, aren't markets
0: like, always constructs? Like, aren't markets created? So exactly. So it's not so just the market says a nurse is worth, worth less than an advertising exec. Like, that's actually something that we've constructed, isn't it? Because yeah, and that's,
2: that's precisely the point I'm going to come to. Yeah. With, you know, I think um, often, um, you know, probably bad economists um, you know, do, do think of it in this very sort of ob- objective sense, but you need to think about the context in which this is all happening. Um, so, you know, employers are coming to it with values. Um, the workers are coming with values. This is all happening within a certain power dynamic and structure. The institutions in which it's taking place will shape the outcomes. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why we end up with the set of wages that we have. I mean, so just to give you one example, um, when we look at gender pay gap, often people say, well, that's because women are disproportionately in low paid industries. Um, but what researchers find is when they pull it apart and you look at industries that become more masculine or more feminine over time, the wages actually move. Um, so the more women in an industry, the lower paid it is. Um, so you know, there's, there's things that are sitting behind these market dynamics that are leading to those outcomes. Um, that unfortunately means it's very difficult to shift. Um, So you have to start thinking about institutional structures and things along that line. Um, There are things that government can do, and Andrew's pointed to sick leave as as one example. I think that's a good one. Um, Where these people are employed by government, um, as nurses and teachers are, there is obviously scope for government to address some of these issues directly um, through deciding to pay these people more.
3: Um, And then there's other sort of
2: institutional ways you can get at it. So things like fair pay cases through the Fair Work Commission. Um, you know, are childcare workers actually unfairly paid because it is a feminized industry, um, and should they be rewarded more if we compared them to people doing comparable work in other sectors?
0: Yeah, there was
1: all always- the, the other. The other aspect of this isn't just thinking about differences between jobs; it's also thinking about the difference between labour and capital. So, if we look at the labour market, we've seen a, a doubling of unemployment uh, if we include those working zero hours. But if we look at the stock market, the impact is much smaller. Uh, it was down a third at the worst, uh, but now it's only down about a, a quarter or a fifth, and, uh, depending on which country you look to. Uh, if you look at the property market, the property market's uh, held up fairly solidly. So, owners of assets have come through this much better than workers in fragile jobs, uh, which is just another way in which the pandemic could increase inequality in Australia. Uh, not to mention the huge uh, disparity uh, in what's happened with schooling shutdowns. We had to have those schooling shutdowns, but they've really exacerbated uh, the the learning gap, uh, which could turn into an earning gap later in the career if we don't do something about it.
2: Okay. Can I just jump in on that, Eddie? Yeah, go for it. You guys know not than me. Sorry, Andrew and I just feel... Re- <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, so, Greiton's done some work on this, and this goes, you know, I just want to tie it back with something that Andrew said more about the nature of this recession being the cheese session. Uh, and that's exactly right. You know, this has hit women disproportionately hard, um, partly because they've been at the front line of job losses, uh, but also because they took the lion's share of managing remote, remote learning. Um, so when we think about policies to help stimulate the economy on the other side, um, one that we've talked about at Grant, which I think is really good because it hits both of those things, is rolling out additional tutoring to help disadvantaged students that have fallen behind during this period of remote learning catch up. Um, So that addresses that point about the the students falling behind. It also, when you look at the sort of jobs it would create, this is gonna be um, people graduating from teachers degree, teaching degrees or other degrees. We know that young people are disproportionately hit by this pandemic, probably also gonna be disproportionately women. Um, so you're really killing two birds with one stone there. We're getting government money into the economy, we're creating jobs for the groups that have suffered badly and we're addressing an area of pressing social need. Yep. Um, so I think those are the kind of policy responses we need to see more of.
0: That's a really interesting thought, isn't it, that we traditionally say that when you come out, government stimulates by building stuff, and I get, you know, why you do, but there's, is there an argument that the stimulus should go into the caring professions this time to... to to sort of change, the, change that dynamic. And if you look at where there's already job shortages, it's in areas like aged care, and it's in areas like you know early learning and um, disability services, well, there's a massive shortfall in staff. So is, is that a place that you can sort of think stimulus the same way as it's kind of easy to think stimulus, you'll buy a new road, but can you talk stimulus in a caring economy as well? Absolutely, and uh, you think about the impact on charities. Uh,
1: Charities are suffering this perfect storm right now where donations are down, volunteering is down, but demand is up. Uh, So now's the time that uh, you'd you'd like to see a government which was stepping up to assist uh, many of the charities, uh, whether that's food banks, emergency relief services, whether it's organisations that just hold the social fabric together in a time in which we're going through uh, the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Uh, And again, charity workers, disproportionately women. So there you're addressing the hit to the labour market, which has been disproportionately on uh, female workers.
0: What what do you reckon, Danielle?
2: Yeah, so absolutely. Um, So look, I think probably um, stimulus should be a mix of those things. Um, So, you know, you know, there are a lot of jobs in construction and that's got good economic multipliers. So putting money into that sector is not a bad thing, uh, particularly if you're doing it to build something useful, like social housing. Uh, but I think we should be thinking about money going into the, the caring professions as well. Um, so, you know, those are the areas where we know we're going to need to create jobs in the future. Um, and they are areas that have been hit disproportionately hard by this. So
0: that is a good piece of government. Alice has made a great point in the chat that at the moment, job keeper and job seeker have also been stimulus. Um, is there an argument to maintain, or at least not go back to the old rate of new start? Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it is a form of stimulus. People that receive those. Um, support is go- are going to be spending the lion's share of that in the economy. Is that a stimulus measure?
2: Uh, well, Sure is. Yeah, so yes. I mean, that stimulus, we normally think of it as a sort of a temporary payment, whereas this would be permanent, but um, absolutely, those people are gonna spend the money. Um, and I think, you know, the other economic argument for it is that payment has been so low, so devastatingly low, that has actually been a, you know, a barrier to people finding a job, you know, when you're actually, you know, skipping meals, wondering how you're going to pay your rent, um, you know, you're not necessarily in the headspace for a job interview, um, you know, it's, it's got to the point where it's actually counterproductive in terms of what we're trying to do, which is, you know, actually get people to the point where they're out there and ready to find another job. So, um, yes, that should be very high on the list of, of things government do on the other side of this. I don't think it will stay where it is at the moment, but I think it should stabilise at a significantly
0: higher level. Do you want to say anything on that, Andrew, or else I'll go to the room for some questions? Well, I was going to
2: say,
1: Peter, the other uh, essential thing we should be uh, thinking about at the moment is how do we find policies which are both good in terms of supporting demand right, right now, but also add to the productive capacity of the economy in the future? And a natural one in that is education. The biggest cost of education isn't the tuition you pay, it's the earnings you forego. And when your potential earnings are zero because there's no jobs around, it's the ideal time to be studying. So in the early nineties recession, we saw a massive uptick in the year 12 completion rate going from about half to about 80% in just a couple of years. Uh, And that was because young people rationally realized there was no point being a 15 year old school lever in the nineties recession. We're a generation on now and the equivalent to finishing year 12 is going to university. Uh, So it's crazy not to be opening up university places to people who would be able to study and who, if we didn't provide that place, uh, would be receiving unemployment benefits. Uh, that's not good for them and it's not good for the productive capacity of the economy, which, uh, as we know, will only become more technological uh, and will demand a higher level of skills. Uh, so anyone who's got the smarts to go to university should have a place there waiting, waiting for waiting for them. Uh, and I'd love to see more of those places being, being created uh, through uh, a government which wasn't uh, waging the culture wars against the humanities, but was instead allowing people to study the courses that uh, take, the, uh, take their passions.
0: As, a, as an economist, how do you respond to the humanities call? Because the government is saying, we are supporting areas where they're demanded. It kind of, kind of sounds like it's an economic argument. So what's the economic comeback for the humanities to that proposition? So
1: It's a short term, long term problem. Uh, what they're doing is they're looking at short-term wages. And in your 20s, when you do a narrow degree, uh, you earn the highest wages immediately after graduation. But once you take a longer view, and uh, David Deming has a lovely paper about to come out in the Quarterly Journal of Economics on this, uh, once you look right across the course of a career, uh, suddenly courses like uh, social sciences and broad life sciences uh, look a whole lot more attractive. That's because the labour market changes. And so the narrow set of skills you train for can, uh, can, can be rendered obsolete uh, if you're too narrow cast. But if you do something broad, like humanities or social sciences, you set yourself up with a platform for lifelong learning. Well, not to mention, obviously, that uh, uh, understanding history, philosophy, sociology is just fundamental to, uh, to being a, a, a good, healthy society in the 21st century.
2: I mean, I'm not even sure it's good in the short term. though. Like, I mean, this is what I struggle with. It's not, there's, there's not much of a mapping. You know, if they say this is about um, you know prioritising those degrees to make people job ready, um, there's not a very good overlap between the employment statistics, the graduate employment outcomes, and the decisions they've made around funding. Um, so yes, there are some STEM subjects that have really strong outcomes for graduates like engineering and um, IT to a lesser extent. Um, there Some of the health, the health like nursing have really good graduate outcomes but you know economics has really great graduate outcomes and we're desperate to get more people in. Um, That's one of the degrees they're now discouraging. Um, You know some of the sciences like biology actually don't have particularly good graduate outcomes so it looked to me um, like even if they were just focusing on that short-term metric which as Andrew said is probably not the right thing to focus on, um, it was a very blunt tool to get there.
0: we're going to go and um, take some questions from the room because there's been a lively discussion going on in chat. I'm going to call Paul up first if you're happy to come on mic, Paul. Yeah. Um, Okay. The question I have is, I guess, uh, what do the speakers think of uh, whether the the current slowdown will lead to an increased tolerance for um, ideas like degrowth or um, growth agnosticism, as Kate Rayworth called it, this idea that you can sort of build your economy to cope with a lower rate of growth than we've expected of the economy in the past.
1: So I think we're having a pretty uh, quick real-world test of that, Paul, right now, Uh, where the world economy is uh, shrinking for the first time in a generation. Uh, And if you were to measure average levels of happiness around the world, uh, you wouldn't detect a great degree of pleasure among uh, most people in the world for that. Um, Extreme poverty, meaning the share of people on less than $2 a day, uh, is sitting around 700 million. And the World Bank forecasts that it could go to more than a billion people. So that means you're talking about a couple of hundred million people who will go to bed hungry every night. It'll have impacts on infant mortality. It'll have impacts on uh, the spread of other diseases like tuberculosis and malaria. Uh, This pandemic is killing directly, but the growth collapse will also kill indirectly. Uh, And if you look at uh, advanced countries like ours, uh, I don't see any evidence that people are happier when their incomes stagnate. Uh, Indeed, rising living standards have been one of the central reasons why we've seen uh, rising le- levels of, uh, of happiness in many countries uh, and lower levels of uh, suffering, things like uh, uh, f- experiencing physical pain. Uh, growth doesn't guarantee fairness. We need to fight for equality alongside it, but it creates the potential for redistribution, for being more generous to those here and abroad. Uh, whether you want to build more roads, whether you want to increase the level of new start slash JobKeeper, Uh, whether you want to provide more foreign aid or whether you want to provide tax cuts, all of those things become easier with growth and harder when you go into stagnation.
0: What I don't get, and maybe you can help me here, Danielle, is that this idea that for a company to be a good company, it needs to keep growing by 10% or a certain percent every year. Can't you just have good companies that just do what they do and keep doing? And they're the ones that they're not they're not delivering the growth that you need to grow the economy and it kind of it feels like sometimes you're making things that work well have to pedal harder just to prove they're they're worth it existing
2: um look i mean i think if you're talking about it at a, at a macro sense which is where andrew was going to i mean it is the growth that creates the new jobs that creates the improvement in living standards and we have had very significant improvement in living standards you know if you compare someone living now compared to in the 70s or 80s, um, you know, material living standards have moved up significantly, but it's not just about the stuff you can buy, as Andrew says, it's, it's about, you know, being able to support all the other social infrastructure that we value. So putting money into environmental protection or social security or all of those things come about through growth. Um, so, you know, that actually drives a better life. This is why, you know, each generation has been better off than the one that goes before, um, not just in, in terms of stuff, but in terms of health, in terms of education outcomes, etc. So, um, you know, you're probably getting a very economist answer here for that one, Paul. I'm afraid, but um, you know, I'm very much in the pro-growth, but not just because of the material stuff. All the other things that go with it.
0: Can you guys help me with one more thing? a term I've never actually understood, which is productivity. So this magic journey that we grow just by being more productive. So I think for those that are in work at the moment, sort of um, through this process, we've felt more productive than ever, but it's just been to keep things going. So how does productivity, not using any economic jargon, lead to growth?
1: Productivity is just how much you produce per per person per hour. Uh, so if you uh, think back to somebody who was operating in a, an office of the 1950s, uh, they were less productive because... Uh, the office might not have had air conditioning in summer and so they couldn't pay attention in the afternoons because they had to uh, get uh, things typed by someone else rather than simply entering them into a computer Uh, because when they wanted to communicate with somebody in the other side of town uh, they needed to uh, walk the document over rather than just send it by email Uh, and you you look at uh, what a a carpenter these days can produce using mechanized tools, compare it to the hand tools of the the 1900s, and they're they're producing more stuff per hour. Uh, And productivity is essentially the main source of of growth in living standards and the the source of the growth in wages. It doesn't guarantee that we're going to have wages increasing, and indeed there's been a divergence between productivity growth and wage growth over the course of the last uh, seven years or so. Uh, but it, it creates the potential for higher living standards. Uh, and so when you've got more technology and when you've got a, a, an economy that is open to, uh, to more investment, uh, you're able to make people more productive. I think we're going to find some interesting ways of, uh, of doing that during this crisis. I am a particular bugbear against open, uh, open plan offices. Uh, every time I look at the research on open plan offices, it suggests to me that people in open plan uh, just get distracted, uh, that it doesn't add to teamwork, uh, but you end up with people just donning their noise-cancelling headphones and uh, uh, bunkering down to, uh, to the exclusion of their co-workers. Uh, but so, uh, so I think there is uh, a potential move either back to offices or towards teleworking. Uh, And we've probably moved a decade ahead on teleworking as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I think many more people will be working uh, a day or two from home during the week, uh, because workplaces have now figured out that actually uh, engaging online, like we're doing now, isn't exactly as good as being in the room, uh, but might get you uh, 70% of the way there, uh, which if the alternative is a long commute,
0: could well make you more productive. You've jumped into the next topic that I want to spend some time on, Andrew. So I'm going to put a few of the questions that we had on hold, because I'm really interested in this. From an economist's perspective, what is the risk and reward of this shift that we're moving to in terms of those of us lucky enough to have work, particularly in the sort of, I guess what Reich used to call the symbolic analysts, like people that sort of do thinking and sharing ideas for a living. If we can do all of it like this, what does that do to the economics of a city, um, Danielle? And there's gonna be a huge cost, isn't there?
2: Yeah, it's a super interesting question. And I think, um, so if, if that is right, that this leads to long-term change in working patterns for that you know, 40% or so of people that can work remotely. Um, so if it leads to a world where um, you know, either we don't go into the office at all, or we only go in three days a week, or whatever it is, um, I think we'll see a shift in demand for wanting more space in our homes so the home office just became really valuable um, and less commercial office space um, so i think we may well see a bit of a um reimagining of some of those commercial office blocks i i think um
0: what could they do what could you do with that well
2: i think what we'll see maybe is i know so i know personally of um people that work in smaller companies thinking of moving to a model where they actually work entirely from home, but then they want some kind of co-working space where they can go um, You know, two days a month, a week a month, when they need to do that really collaborative work and sit down together. So you may actually find um, that some of those spaces that used to be the, the sort of the cubicle offices where everyone would go to their one spot, um, now become more co-working spaces where four companies you know, will share that space and book in different times or, Um, So, you know, I think all of that is kind of in play right now. And then I think there's also... How bad do you
0: think it would be, though? Sally's just saying, could the office blocks in the cities be converted into apartments? Like, is it going to be that drastic?
2: I I think this is still very much in play, um, so a lot, you know, it will like have been the old long-
0: factories are being converted into warehouse. You know. Yeah,
2: I always actually wondered if shopping malls one day would end up turning into um, oh. you know really cool apartment complexes as well. I Not unless
0: they change light their light. lighting.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah, I probably wouldn't want to live there. I have to admit. Um. lost so my Um. Yeah, I think the other interesting thing about how cities changes is this, um, you know, big question right now for, for Sydney and Melbourne in particular is transport. Um, So, you know, we have this kind of hub and spoke model, we get huge numbers of people into the CBD, you know, at peak times every day through public transport, which we cannot any longer do, or, you know, certainly the capacity is taken a big hit because of social distancing. Um, So that's going to change a lot, I think, and there's going to be a much more of a shift to active transport, particularly cycling. Um, So we need to kind of reconfigure transport routes to support that in the longer term as well. So I think that, you know, that's. A whole sort of interesting debate going on as well about how we actually get people into the
0: city um, when they when they decide they do need to go in. But Andrew, there's huge costs there as well because a lot of our you know our economy is based on employing people to build more roads and build more office blocks, and if we don't need them, that's a cost as well.
1: I think there'll there'll continue to be demand, but uh, as you and Danielle have said, Peter, there'll be a demand for different sorts of work. Uh, for example, you know, if you're going to turn an office block into uh, housing, uh, it involves massive remodeling. Uh, office blocks and housing are, are very, very de- require very different uh, things. Uh, and I also think uh, we'll we want to uh, uh, reimagine the workplace interactions. So one of the reasons that cities are much more productive than less dense areas uh, is uh, the idea that you uh, that, that uh, you pick up innovations from those who are around you. There's the kind of serendipitous, tripping over smart people, connecting ideas, uh, which you simply don't get in uh, in less dense areas. So my research suggests that someone who moves from a rural area to a city in Australia, raises their earnings by about a third. Uh, and that that's uh, mostly a productivity effect, which uh, more than makes up for the increased cost in housing. Uh, how do we ensure that we get those uh, benefits of, uh, of ideas exchange in a world in which more people are working from home. Uh, we haven't quite worked out how to do the serendipitous water cooler photocopier conversation uh, via Zoom, but that'll be uh, that'll be are one of the advice? next challenges. Kind of I, 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 like think that's super,
2: I think that's super interesting, and I just wanted to say one thing that we've been doing at Grattan is we have our normal meetings via Zoom, but then we also have team coffee. Um, which is, you know, you're not going in with an agenda, you're, you're going in just to kind of chew the fat and you might, so you're sort of having to schedule the serendipity in a way, which just sounds a bit contradictory, but, you know, this is what businesses will do. They'll have to find ways in which they can recreate those benefits um,
3: eventually.
0: And I kind of feel that, uh, like, our organisation is about 16 people and we've done really well, but we all had pre-existing relationships. And I think mm. it, it can work really well when the relationship is already there. I'm not sure about building a relationship from scratch. Yes, yes.
1: Which applies in the dating world
0: as well. <laughs> I wouldn't know.
1: Um, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I- so, me me either, but certainly uh, my anecdotal <laughs> conversation suggests that uh, the shutdown has been okay for people who've had relationships and have been able to continue them virtually, uh, but for anyone who's uh, out looking for a relationship, it's a bit like looking for a job right now. It's a uh, uh, a challenging market.
0: I, um, the other question I had about working from home is the economics of local communities. What, what, you know, if more of us are working from home and, um, not just locking ourselves in the roof for 10 hours a day like I feel like I've been doing. What else can, has anyone thought about how the economics of a local community, like obviously cafes could be busier, but what other things could could prop up if we're less mobile and more at home?
1: I love this Facebook page, The Kindness Pandemic, which has been highlighting a whole lot of the ways in which Australians have been generous to one another and and a lot of the uh, local community groups that have sprung up. Uh, My wife, uh, Gwyneth, and I sent a flyer around our local street when the pandemic hit, offering help to others. Uh, and what was curious is we didn't end up providing very much help, but we ended up providing a lot of social connections. People were just uh, happy to be linked linked in, in a, a local street Facebook group. Uh, and so you've, you've got a lot of these sort of mutual aid sharing groups uh, that are uh, springing up. Uh, and all of that becomes a little bit easier when people aren't quite so time crunched by commuting. Uh, Robert Putnam, who is one of my professors at Harvard, once said that uh, commuting is uh, one of the greatest enemies of social capital. Uh, It's very hard to be connected with others when you're spending a couple of hours a day in a metal box, getting angry at the other people in metal boxes around you, uh, it's much easier if you're uh, you're, you're at home, uh, walking around on public transport, catching the bike. Uh, you're just at a much more human level for those interactions. So I do think we've got to have a civic renaissance in Australia, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the pandemic may unexpectedly provide ways of of getting that uh, that those civil society groups more active than they've been.
0: So that seems to be a non-economic, this might be where I, my my blockage of what economics is, but it seems to be there's no money in that exchange.
1: So in our first year classes, we teach people that economics is about maximizing happiness or well-being. Anyone who tells you economics is about maximizing money has got rocks in their head.
0: So where are you with the Bhutanese sort of um, happiness index? Is that something that should be part of our sort of our, our framework. I know I think Jacinta has been talking about well-being budgets as part of the input into um, your, your your sort of social planning. I'm not going to use the word economic. Mm. Like, is that just sort of fluff Danielle or is there something that we that, that can create actionable insights that make a society work better and by implication an economy work better?
2: Yeah so look at I me. Mean, it depends on how it's done essentially. So you know people have gravitated towards GDP as a sort of a standard of living measure because it's just stuff we can measure and we put a number on it. Um, But, you know, any economist will tell you GDP is not equal to welfare or wellbeing, as as Andrea said. So, um, you know, what they've done in New Zealand, which I think is really interesting, is to say, well, you know, what are the other inputs to a good life? And they focused on things like community connections, housing, you know they've picked, I think, about seven different indicators, and when they pull together their budget proposals, they're actually looking at the impact of those things on the different indicators that they've said they care about. And you know I think they have actually used, they've integrated it into their decision making in a really effective way over there. So I was over in New Zealand a couple of years ago when they were coming round to introducing this. And their um, finance minister, who's like their treasurer, stood up and spoke. And he was speaking to a group of public servants that I was also there to talk to. Um, and he, you know, he sent them a very clear signal, you know, that you needed to think about these indicators when you're putting forward proposals. You know, you're not just talking about the impact on the bottom line or the economic multiplier. You know, you need to be thinking about how it's impacting these different measures of living standards. Um, So I think if it's embraced by decision makers, policy makers in that way, um, then it does actually change the mindset and making sure that you're picking up on those things that aren't captured in the narrow GDP. So
0: say they picked up something. So it sounds like really good PR feel good stuff, but does it change the way you'd construct a budget or change the way the mark the global markets would look at you and i guess particularly after we've seen the failure of countries that don't have strong institutions like is i guess going back to economics are we going to look at the value of a national economy differently after this
2: um look I'm not sure if it's going to fundamentally change the way investors assess um you know whether they lend to new zealand or not but i would say that you know having a a strong um, set of institutions and a strong society, um, you know, is, is got to be a good thing from an institutional perspective. Um, so, you know, I, I think investors will increasingly look for that. I mean, what we, you know, we, we get a good sense looking overseas and looking at what's going on in the US, um, you know, in a crisis, um, you know, how important having, you know, good institutions, good government and, a you know, cohesive society actually is.
0: Andrew?
1: Yes, I think it's made a difference. Jacinda Ardern is not only the leader, but also the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction. And that's a target that New Zealand has agreed to regularly report on. We put in place a well-being framework within Treasury, which goes back to the start of the millennium, but it hasn't really had the focus that it needed. When Ken Henry was Secretary of Treasury, it had greater prominence. He was interested in a lot of the capability approach that Amartya Sen has, uh, has engaged in uh, and looking more more broadly at well-being. You now, I think about uh, the changes, the two big changes that have occurred since I was born in 1972, uh, real incomes per person have doubled, uh, life expectancy has increased by a decade. Uh, I think if I could only have one of those, which would I want, uh, twice the income or 10 more years of life? I'd take 10 more years of life and, and my guess is that most people on this uh, on this call would make the same decision uh, so just to just to look at money does miss some of the uh, the big benefits
0: yeah look there's some really good um reflections going on in the chat i don't know if stephanie can step up she seems to know more about um the notion of um a well-being budget than um i do but have you got a question or a comment there stephanie we go. Otherwise, I'm going to have to read it out. Hannah's trying to unmute you, even as we speak. This is the the awkward
3: moment when we try to get audience engagement. Hi, Stephanie. Yeah. Hi. Um, yes, I'm. Um, I'm thinking that um, that Philip Lawn, yeah, a lecturer locally here in Adelaide, um, has a very good handle on the genuine um, uh, progress indicator, which takes into account all the aspects of, of a society rather than the the hardline GDP, which measures stuff and money and economics and for an economy rather than a society. And uh, I just think that we're really, we can't continue in that way. I'm a fairly green person and I did my footprint. And, and, and if I don't do away with my present car uh, and minimize it, I've, I'm still 2.4. Of a planet, I need two point four planets, even in in my with everything i 'm doing, so I just think we need to change that whole GDP stuff around. look at society i mean the um, the uh, uh, entertainment industry employs far more people than the fossil than the coal industry, and yet they're, you know the government thinks that 's just people playing around that 's nice you know for extra time and hobby. But it's a huge employer, it's a huge uh, entree to trade overseas, it's soft um, It's soft diplomacy, it's, it's so many things, and yet it's completely like stamped out as like, that's just for when you've got time to play around. So I just think we're heading in completely the wrong direction. And if we don't turn it around and start doing something quite radically different, um, we're just going to end up with uh, a very big mess. Coming out of COVID. Danielle,
0: what's your sense of the re? Is is this an opportunity for a reload and a rethink, or do you feel that we're still going to be ending up back where we started, just saying that we're in a really bad economic situation, so we've got to do what we've always done again? Uh,
2: Look, I've been fluctuating on this daily, I think. Um, You know, I think um, early on in the pandemic, everyone was like, you know, this changes everything. Um, you know, we're going to have to seriously rethink. Um, but increasingly, I, I sort of realised that, um, well, I don't think that I've heard anyone say that COVID has fundamentally changed their position on a topic. Um, they think that it means that whatever they believe should, should be put in place, but I don't think, um, you know, it's changed too many people's minds. But on that... Um, maybe might be that the Prime
0: Minister who's worked out that governing to the centre gets him 70% approval.
2: That's true, yep. And, yeah. and that, that is something I think that, um, you know, has changed, is that we've seen a degree of pragmatism and a reward for that. Um, so, you know, big approval ratings, but also a big increase in trust in government, as you know, Peter. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm someone that's been looking at that trust in government, uh, those figures for a long time, and they've been heading the wrong way for the past decade. And for the first time, remarkable. We've, yeah. we've seen a real turnaround. Um, so I do think that does provide an opportunity. So that is kind of the ray of hope. Um, and I think, you know, on, the, on the, the environment stuff that that Stephanie's raising, you know, I think COVID is an interesting opportunity to have a conversation, um, particularly around climate change and climate change policy. Um, and because I think, you know, what we've seen is that we are willing to actually bear a pretty significant economic cost to save lives now.
0: Look after each other. Yeah.
2: Yep. And, you know, when you're talking about real climate action. You're talking about a much smaller economic cost. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be huge in terms of people's living standards um, for a huge benefit, both to lives now and the future. Um, So, you know, I think we should think about that dynamic. Um, And, you know, so that does make me a little bit optimistic that we can have a different conversation on that topic, which has just been so bogged down
3: for so long.
0: Yeah, Andrew, the accepted wisdom is that, you know, we've got a choice between snapping back or building back better, which f- feels a bit glib. But is there, is there an economic um, framework for what build back better could look like?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, building back better involves uh, tackling some of the big challenges Australia's faced over the la- last couple of decades. Uh, among those, uh, rising inequality and declining civic connectedness. Uh, those two are, are linked together. Uh, we've become much more of a society of me than a society of we. Uh, and that has not only meant that the income share of the top 1% has uh, doubled, uh, it's also meant that uh, we've seen a collapse in uh, attendance of churches, membership of unions, uh, organisational activity and scouts, guides, rotary lines, uh, and even a drop off in volunteering. Uh, So I think we need to become a more connected society. And I think the pandemic uh, has uh, accentuated feelings of loneliness and anxiety, but it's also increased the sense of social solidarity. So it's a moment in which I think we can uh, grab some of that that sense that uh, the bonds between us really do have inherent value. And and that's what social capital is uh, in order to, create a society uh, with a stronger sense of communal value. Uh, and that, uh, that means uh, equipping the most vulnerable with the skills that they will need uh, as robotics advances. Uh, it means building a social safety net to recognise that any of us could have the fall from the roof for the uh, uh, job clo- employment, employment closure that throws us into disability or unemployment. Uh, and it means uh, understanding that uh, a society in which we look after the caring uh, professions, uh, look after those who engage in, in what one sociologist called emotional labor uh, are deserving of being better remunerated than they are today.
0: I want one more go through one more topic before we we close off this discussion, guys, which is this that it seems for the foreseeable future there will be constraints on global travel um, we 're also moving into what appears to be a global recession slash Depression. Um, there is a school of thought that says this is going to see countries retreating from globalization into much more back back to national national economies. There's been calls to rebuild local supply chains within Australia. There's also been questions about if the economy, if there's joblessness, will there need to be as much skilled migration, four, five, sevens. Is that a good sort of, is that a likely scenario? I don't want you to necessarily give a value, good or bad, but as an economist, how do you think through that scenario and what's the risk and reward?
2: Um, So look, I think there's probably a distinction between the the dynamic post COVID for trade as opposed to movement of people. Um, So sort of both elements of globalization. So I think um, trade, I'm optimistic that, um, you know, we won't turn inwards, um, that, you know, that the the world will continue to trade. Although, you know, there was obviously already some kind of um, dark clouds on the horizon pre-COVID with some of the, um, you know, early trade skirmishes between the US and China. And obviously more recently, um, we've seen um, some strong moves from China against um, various Australian exports, um, including our universities, most concerningly. Um, So, you know, I think there are risks to the trade situation, but um, I, you know, I believe at least policymakers in Australia understand the benefits of free trade, so I don't think we're going to be closing off to the world anytime soon. Um, People is a different matter. Um, So we've actually, you know, our economy's been pretty dependent on um, high rates of population growth for about the, particularly the last seven years. And, you know, even though we always talk about how we've had 29 years of uninterrupted economic growth. Um, that is not true if you look in per capita terms. Um, so a lot of that headline growth rate has been popped up, propped up here by pretty strong population growth. Um, that's, that will change, at least in the short term. So we know we're gonna have an outflow of temporary migrants this year. Um, I think it's very unclear when borders will be properly open again. Um, you know, under our current strategy, you, you can't really have people without quarantine until we until we have a vaccination. Um, and also, you know, while the economy is soft and there's high rates of unemployment, you just won't be having skilled migrants come in. Um, so I actually think, you know, we we have to expect uh, at least for a few years that, you know, population growth does not look as, as we might have expected it would pre-COVID. And that's got implications for all, all sorts of... Um, Labor markets have got implications for um, the housing market, in particular um, construction, which is premised on strong rates of population growth. So, so this so is, I think a that is important.
0: we need to keep growing the population to create the demand for housing and create the demand for services. And if that goes off, then that's when an economist says things start to contract. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, most economists would say, you know, you should always be focusing on the per capita <laughs> story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we, we do spend a lot of time talking about um, headline growth rates and, you know, population growth has propped that
0: up. So one last question. I'm, I'm going to go to Andrew. If there's if there's less growth, but that and, and so we have less money, but the money that we have less of is being spent on Conspicuous consumption, restaurants—you know, going out—that sort of thing. It's bad economically, but it's not necessarily going to make us less happy, is it?
1: Uh, certainly, there's uh, bad and good, better and worse ways of uh, spending money. As anyone who's uh, woken up with a headache in the morning, uh, wondering uh, why their wallet looks empty, will know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think. In general, uh, a hit to people's incomes means a hit to their happiness because it, it affects your um, potential to, uh, uh, to, to, to do the things that you, that you love, to give the kids your, the opportunities that you want them to have. Um, so every bit of research that I've seen suggests that the, re- the relationship between incomes and happiness is a, a pretty tight one. Uh, across countries, for example, the relationship between per capita GDP and happiness is 0.8, uh, as uh, Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers have estimated, uh, which is about as high as uh, as you get on these uh, these sorts of correlations. Um, so I am I am worried about people's well-being. Uh, And I don't think that uh, a disconnection from work is going to make people happier. Indeed, some work that uh, Nick Carroll at the ANU did a a while back suggested that for someone who loses their job, the hit to their happiness is like an $80,000 drop in in income. So aside from losing the money, it's the sense of dignity and well-being uh, that comes with losing a job. Uh, that's why I'm worried about suggestions that uh, we should just give up on the world of work and go to a universal basic income and and tolerate high levels of joblessness. I don't look around the world and see countries being happier when they have higher levels of joblessness. They seem to be sadder. So I think employment does need to be a priority. Uh, indeed, I'd prioritise full employment, which according to the Reserve Bank, isn't the 5% we had at the start of the year. It's something much closer to 4%. Uh, that would mean that we had more people in work and that those who are in work under full employment are some of the most vulnerable. You want to get people with disabilities, Indigenous Australians, people with less skills into the labour market, you've got to get that unemployment rate down to 4% or lower. Uh, And that's uh, the point at which you finally start to get wage growth. So that for me is uh, one of the big priorities in uh, in next year, uh, ensuring that uh, there are jobs available for people who want them, uh, is fundamental to, uh, to to a happy society and to a, a, a strong society.
0: And inevitably, Danielle, just winding up, that just won't happen. We need government. If government's got us through this part of the crisis, we're really going to need government to do more than just sort of loosen the red tape and the green tape to make that happen, aren't we?
2: Absolutely. And with a um, sort of downturn of this nature, um, particularly after those job keeper and job seeker supports come off at the end of September, there will be a big hole in demand. And the only way we're going to fill that is by some pretty strong government intervention. So we need to start thinking seriously now about stimulus measures uh, because that is the only way we're going to bring the economy back anywhere near its potential and bring those jobs back anywhere near fast enough. Um, so and that matters a lot. Um, You know, getting people back to work sooner um, affects not just their outcomes in the short term, but in the long term, and it affects the economy's performance, not just in the short term, but the long term. So that is absolutely where the government needs to be putting their time and energy. Um, And can I also just say very quickly, while we've been talking about local communities, um, I can see my local baker, Alison, on the line. Hello, Alison. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a strange coincidence, but she's on the front screen there. <laughs> but
0: a bread led recovery. like Yeah, you know. and she's, she
2: bakes the best bread. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hey, just to wind this up, thank you both for your time. I guess the thing that stands with me today is to stop talking about economics and start talking about happiness. So, you guys aren't practitioners of the dismal science, you're actually happiness professionals. So maybe, you know, we can talk about a bit of a rebrand for the profession. And um,
2: well, let's rebrand. People will
0: start inviting you to dinner parties again. <laughs> we're both, <laughs> we're
3: both in favour of wellbeing. Over. <laughs> <laughs> we're both but, in
2: favour hey, um, of wellbeing,
1: Peter. But uh, I think we would also wear the, brand, the badge of dismal science uh, with pride particularly in the era of Black Lives Matter. Uh, economists were called dismal scientists because of the so-called dismal idea uh, that people of different races were equal. Uh, if that's a dismal idea, I'm pretty happy to stand by it. Uh, and uh, and our, us, us dismal scientists can be happy knowing that ultimately we're right in the issue of racial equality.
0: Notwithstanding <laughs> that I bet you that was a pre-prepared message. It's a very good one, Andrew. Um, Hey, thanks, guys. That was a fantastic discussion. Thanks for everyone in the chat. Thanks to Hannah for running the back of the chat, and thanks for everyone to be part of it. And have a great rest of the Thursday. Cheers, guys.
1: Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Hannah. Hi, thanks,